Living a well-balanced lifestyle goes beyond ensuring your finances are in order. Welcome to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara speaks with wellness industry leaders and related professionals to share more than financial planning advice. She addresses your questions about living a healthy lifestyle at any age. Learn how to gracefully maneuver life's challenges with support and resources to guide you along the way. Barbara and the team at Hightower help you make a plan, make an investment, and make a difference in your own wealth and well-being, and in your families, and within your community. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Keeping the Well and Wealthy with your host, Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara, how are you? I am terrific, Eric. How are you today? I am doing fantastic. I'm so excited. You've got a fantastic guest on the show. Who'd you bring on today? I brought Dr. John Mantovani, and we're going to learn a lot today about hope for autism and other neurological challenges. All right. Well, I'm all ears. I'm very excited to get started. Go for it. Well, thank you, Eric. So I'm asking the audience here, do you notice that something may be a little different with your child or grandchild and wonder if there's a problem? And if so, what is it? What caused it? Can it be fixed? Well, we're going to address some of those things today by talking to Dr. John Mantovani, a child neurologist in St. Louis, Missouri, and chair of the Missouri Department of Mental Health's Commission on Autism Spectrum Disorders. Dr. Mantovani received his medical degree from the University of Missouri Columbia School of Medicine with a fellowship at Washington University School of Medicine in Pediatric Neurology, after which he served for five years on the faculty at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Returning to St. Louis, he started a child neurology program at Mercy Medical Center, where he now serves as the medical director of the Mercy Kids Therapy and Autism Center, providing nearly 30,000 visits annually for children with a wide range of developmental challenges and the largest provider of autism services in eastern Missouri. As a past president of the American Academy for Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine and a current member of the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Developmental Disabilities, Dr. Mantovani has given over 200 lectures nationally and internationally and published many peer-reviewed research articles. Welcome, Dr. Mantovani. May I please call you John? You may. Thank you very much, Barbara. So, John, what attracted you to focus in your specialty of pediatric neurology? So I'll try to make a long story short. The, the long story is that apparently when I was about five years of age, I told everyone in my family I was going to be a doctor. And I don't know whether I just didn't realize there were other options or I had that degree of focus that allowed me to continue that. So the first decision, which was an easy one for me all the way through uh, high school, college, was I knew that I wanted to be a medical doctor. As you go through medical school, of course, you're exposed to all of the different specialties, adult specialties, pediatric specialties, medical, surgical, et cetera. And the first decision I think that most physicians make as they're thinking about their postgraduate training, residency training, whether they want to work with children or adults. And I always wanted to work with children. And to me, children are always the hope for the future. Uh, when you make the difference in the life of a child, 
you've changed something that's going to go on for decades. And now at my age, I realize that as we need great doctors to take care of we older folks as well, yes. uh, but there's just something <laughs> very hopeful about taking care of children. As I made that commitment and started out in pediatrics, I realized that I was really attracted to working with the children and the families, but also the complexity of what goes on in the nervous system and the neurological development of children. And there was something magical about being able to play with a child and get some sense about how their brain was working and what was going well and what wasn't going well. And I was attracted by the puzzle and the intellectual challenge. So it, it really met my goals, both uh, of head and heart, if you will. And it's been a great choice for me all along. I've never regretted making that choice. Oh, that's wonderful. So John, what are the main reasons someone would even seek out a pediatric neurologist? So there are a variety of issues, of course, but a large group, probably half of the time, there are concerns about a child's developmental progress. And so one of my colleagues articulates it very well. She says that the hardest thing about monitoring children's development is you're looking for something that's not there. And so mm. it's the lack of progress or the lack of expected achievement of milestones that are the first red flags. And that usually um, comes to the eye of a grandparent or a parent that's usually shared then with the primary care medical provider. And then there's a referral process. Um, sadly, the first concern of the family members um, through the filter of the primary care doctor to the specialist is taking on the average about 18 months. And so one of the uh, foci of our interest in our center is to shorten that time. So when people have concerns, can you provide access to a specialist who can quickly evaluate and let them know, no, this is one of those things that we see and it's a benign thing and you don't need to be concerned. Or yes, this is something that we wanna pay attention to. And the reason we're so focused on that early recognition, if you will, um, is first of all, from the family's perspective to really validate their views of their child. But secondly, we've learned over the last three decades, really, about effective research-driven and evidence-based treatments that are effective in improving children's developmental outcomes. So early recognition is not only important for uh, families, but it's important for the child. And the sooner we can determine what the issue is and the sooner we can initiate the appropriate therapy, the better that child's outcome is going to be, the, the more typical their life is likely to be, and the more opportunities they're likely to have in the future. That's wonderful. So how early do you think you can diagnose an issue? So someone has a baby maybe that stiffens in their arms or isn't tracking, or what are the things you see? How early can a parent maybe recognize that something something is just a little off? Well, I think and you illustrate what one of the challenges, which is the experience of the parent is critically important. And so we often see that with first children, it's more difficult for parents to recognize any variation. As you build your experience in terms of future children or from the eye of more experienced observers who have raised other children, most, in, most significant issues can be recognized between 12 and 24 months. And okay. depending on 
uh, which system is involved. So motor system delays are more apparent in the first year of life. Language system delays are more apparent in the second and third years of life. So it depends a little bit on the uh, focal point of the concern. And so what types of orders do pediatric neurologists diagnose and treat? I know there's a range, and what would those include? So in the developmental side of things, and as I said, that's only about half of it, but I'll talk about that first. The more common disorders are developmental delays that include speech and language development or physical um, development, followed by autism spectrum disorder, which is certainly the fastest growing now diagnosis of children can, can with significant explain, delays. Yeah. Could you explain, I mean, we hear the term, but what actually is autism spectrum disorder? Autism spectrum disorder really is a grouping of observable behavioral and reactive patterns that we see starting in the first year and going through the second and third years of life, which have to do with social awareness, social connectivity, what we call shared enjoyment. Is your baby aware of you? Does your baby look in your eyes? Does your baby laugh back when you laugh? Does your baby reach out for you whenever you bend down to pick him or her up? And then as they get older, um, are they imitating the sounds that you make? Are they developing words to communicate? And not only words, do they use gestures? Do they point with their fingers? Do they look at objects they want and then point to them to tell you that's what I want, as opposed to just whining or crying to get something? So the core of uh, autism, which has been defined variably over many years, really since the late 1940s, um, the core of the definition has to do with a disconnection in the social communication aspects of a child's development, and then excessive focus on single items. So in, individuals and children on the autism spectrum disorder will have focused obsessions. So mm -hmm. an 18-month-old may pick up all of the threads and strings in the house and walk around shaking them and looking at them and ignoring all of the toys. So how children play is key because play represents children's inner language development and their connection to the world, if you will. When you give them that toy car and they roll that on the carpet and make the car noise, they're representing internally the whole universe of cars and what cars are and how they function. And so playing is really the work of childhood. And so we can observe and watch how children play and determine a lot about what they understand about the world, their curiosity about uh, objects in terms of their representational quality. So okay. a child on the autism spectrum may pick up a toy car and only be interested in turning it over and spinning the little black wheels on the bottom because okay. it doesn't represent a car in the same way so that it does. they're not making that connection. That's right. It, it's not the, they're not connecting in the typical way. But let, before we go on, let me just get back to the, your question about pediatric neurology. So half of the problems that we deal with as child neurologists um, include things like seizure disorders or epilepsy, muscular dystrophy, and other forms of neuromuscular disorders, brain tumors, visual impairment syndromes, genetic disorders that affect a child's overall development and add other things. And then in, on the softer side, we also deal with children who have headaches or repetitive motor patterns called tics. And some of those things are very manageable. So we go from a pretty serious life altering 
world of working with a child and family to one in which it's a medication management to just keep the kid doing well in their overall life right now. Do you also help diagnose ADHD or dyslexia? Um, oftentimes, it's not till a child gets into school age that you know a teacher may recognize some of those issues. Yeah, you're exactly right. So ADHD, which is another one of the really defined neurologically based conditions, really begins showing pretty clear signs between the ages of four and seven. There are certainly two-year-olds that are pretty wild and crazy and what people would say is hyperactive. Um, but That until, was me, John, uh, just saying. <laughs> there we go. Well, some things never change, Barbara. Nope, but the, you're right. But, but the issue there is recognizing <clears throat> that the child's inability to focus, to sustain their attention, and to control their motor activity is interfering with their functioning. We don't diagnose a child because they're more active or because they're a little wilder and crazier maybe than the average. But <clears throat> if it's interfering in some way with their preschool functioning, with their ability to sit and learn, with peer relationships, with the controlled situation at home, then it begins to meet a criteria. So yes, we do diagnose often ADHD and we're very dependent on the observations that come from families, um, teachers, other people who know the child when we try to make that diagnosis. Dyslexia, which is really a, a neurologically based condition in which the sound symbol association between the letter formation and the sound that it's supposed to make um, in terms of reading the word is not well connected. So it's a neurological disorder. It often runs fa in families. It's quite strongly genetic, oh. actually. Um, I didn't realize and, that. And it usually shows up. If you know what to look for, it shows up in preschool age. But most children aren't diagnosed until they're more like six or seven. And so a couple of simple things that are very common in children later diagnosed with dyslexia or a four-year-old who can't learn to rhyme things. If you say, tell me something that, what is this? This is a rock. Look in the room and tell me something that sounds like rock. And you got a big clock right behind you. And they won't be able to do that because that sound symbol association is not developing yet. So lack of ability to rhyme. And I'm not saying that that proves the child has dyslexia, but it's one of the early manifestations. Um, and then as they get into school, they struggle with this whole area of phonics, which is what letters sound like and how we put the sounds of letters together to make words and how we put words together to make sentences and how sentences mean something. And so that process is a very complicated neurological process um, that is genetically endowed it's estimated that probably 10 to 12% of people walking around have dyslexia in one form or another. So highly frequent, many, That's many, interesting. many, 12%. Yeah. Wow. Many, many people learn to cope with it. They adapt and they function very well. But when you talk to them about their early school life in terms of learning to read and facility with reading, and then as they move on in school, the ability to deal with a foreign language, for example, or um, the ability to read for information as opposed to simply reading for facts. So can you understand the inference in a paragraph uh, rather than just the words that are there? All of those things are related to that language processing system that's tied to dyslexia. Dyslexia is not medically treatable. Um, there's no particular medication or biological therapy that's been proven yet. 
but there are certainly intense educational efforts. And the earlier they're started, again, back to the theme, the earlier those things are started, the better the outcome. Best evidence says that dyslexia diagnosed under the age of seven has a much better prognosis than dyslexia diagnosed after age seven. And many, many children are not, not diagnosed until they're nine or 10 or 11. Well, that's the first time I heard about the rhyming. So that may be, give some parents or grandparents out there that ability to at least be aware at an earlier age. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. And you and I have spoken before. You're a parent of three children, and I have two children. And every parent has their idea of their perfect child, right? I mean, right. when a baby's born, we know they're the most perfect child in the world, each one of them. So you have a staff, I believe, of over 75 interdisciplinary professionals. So when that parent comes in because they've found that there's something that maybe you, you can help with, how do you also help the parent cope? It's not just the child, right? It's the whole family. It is. Yeah. And for sure. So we always say in the pediatric world, you always have a minimum of, of two patients in the room. And so it's always a care provider and a child. And so the this, this gets into some areas around medicine and practice, but it gets into other areas that are more, if you will, philosophical or conceptual. So okay. what I would say to everybody listening is that neither you nor your children nor your grandparent, I mean, your grandchild ever were perfect. All that changed was your perspective and your perception of them. That's so great. We, we all began from this very hopeful and optimistic point of view. And so we should. Children deserve that degree of support and nurturing and positivity. And we all want to begin from that. Not a thing in the world wrong with that. One of the concerns is how we as care providers, whether it's parent or grandparent or other involved in the life of the child, how we internalize any issue that may challenge the child's success. So if I have a two and a half or a three-year-old grandchild as an example, who's not developing speech and language typically, I can ignore that. I can say, well, boys talk later than girls. Well, Uncle Fred talked late and I can let it ride. Or I can simply say, let's have somebody look at that and see whether that's a developmental variation, which is not going to be a biggie, or whether there's really an indication that this child has some delay in that online language system connectivity. If so, therapy, even by the age of three or four, is very, very beneficial for the family and for the child. So first advice to the parent and the grandparent is don't be afraid of difference. Difference is all around us. And don't internalize what it means for you because I got news for you. It's not about you. <laughs> Thank you. That's right. And you shared with me when we spoke earlier that about 25% of children have some type of neurological developmental issues. When you use a broad, a broad brush and say, how many children will meet either a diagnostic category or will need intervention or help, whether it be uh, for a learning issue in school or ADHD, or whether it will be something more serious like autism or another diagnosis, it's between one in four and one in six 
The one in four number is if we include mental health and behavioral health issues. Okay. The one in six number is if we stick strictly with the neurological and the developmental side of developmental delays or related conditions in the developmental world. Well, I just find that fascinating. Do we just have to adjust? You mentioned our perspectives have changed. Do we need to adjust our idea of what we consider personally, what we consider normal? Yeah, Maybe I think we do. that's our problem. I mean, we own yeah. that, correct? Sure. And what if you boil it down or if you kind of increase the focus, what people who love the children around them want for those children is a good, happy, and successful life. So the child can grow Absolutely. into what they are intended to grow into, right? right. And so- one of the things that we talk to families about, because it is not good news whenever somebody tells you that the child you love has a developmental issue, and particularly one which may be a continuing developmental issue, which is probably never going to completely go away, that's hard news. And so one of our aphorisms is we're now talking about one piece of this child that you love. This is not the child that you love. And he or she is the same child you came in with earlier this morning. Now we know that we have an opportunity to do some things to help in ways that we didn't know before. And we ought to take that opportunity to be supportive, to be helpful, to be accepting, but also then to get the treatment, get the therapy, get the informed advice about what can be done to help. But at the end of the day, we are all accepting personal and generic shortcomings for ourselves and everybody around us. So we have to move away from that. This is a crisis, even though it feels that way. And, and at it the should, moment, it yeah, does. at the moment it is. I mean, it's frightening and it's, you know, and parents or grandparents or family members and friends aren't equipped to understand right away. It takes a while. Yeah, and that's an important word, I think, because with appropriate explanation, with increased knowledge, then things are less less scary. Things yes. feel somewhat less dramatic. But it's one thing when we hear something about ourselves, but it's something else when we hear something about this child we love. And so that sort of doubles the impact there. The, the broader answer to your question, though, is the what needs to be done, in my view, is increased cultural, academic, and overall acceptance of what difference is. The idea that there's one thing that we're all supposed to be, or that there's only a few things we're supposed to be, um, clearly doesn't work. It doesn't work across the range of issues for human beings, and it certainly doesn't work for children. So we have to be sure that our families are accepting, our schools are accepting, the environment is minimizing disability. So disability is a fan, an interesting concept. Current thinking about disability is disability is not something that is intrinsic to an individual. Disability is the interaction of the needs of the individual and the environment in which that individual lives. Oh, that's interesting. I love that. So we have an opportunity to help the child, of course, we should, but we also have an opportunity and I think a responsibility Absolutely. to work in our neighborhoods and our schools and our churches around 
the concept of if you want to use a cliche, celebrating difference, letting people be who they are. One of the things that I've carried with me, and I've said this many times to trainees um, or staff, um, the best indicator in my view, and this may sound a little harsh, of how a child is likely to do in the long run is whether the parents or the caretakers actually love and nurture and care for the child they have. They give up the ideal child and they move wow. to the child they have. And the families who do that are resoundingly successful at being happier families. And the children are much more successful in terms of their world, their self-esteem and their ability to succeed in the future. Well, you anticipated my next question is the part that parents play in assisting in development. That's just, you know, the acceptance of the child that you have, you love them. So you've always been so hopeful when I've spoken to you about the availability of treatments and therapies. Can you talk a little bit about that and how far you have seen children progress? Yeah, I think that's been something that has been energizing for me for many years in that I've done this kind of work, which is the opportunity to watch the resilience of parents and family members and children in terms of how they overcome, how they achieve, how they make things better for themselves and create, if you will, a new normal for themselves. And so just emotionally and contextually, that has been a wonderful experience for me. But that's tied to the fact that the generic understanding today of neurobiological development and the impact of appropriate environmental supports and therapies coupled with that neurobiological readiness in early childhood literally changes brains. So it's, it sounds trite, but- No, it doesn't. Not if we're changing brains. I'm sorry. That's not trite at all. At the end of this podcast, anyone who's listened to it, who has learned something new, has changed his or her brain. It's that simple. There is a neurobiological mechanism for learning. You build synapses, you build connections, and you tie those connections to other parts of your brain functioning network. And so as you move forward from an educational experience or any type of an experience, your brain has internalized those environmental inputs. And now your brain is different than it was. Well, little children's brains are so much more receptive, so much more available to increase connectivity that the treatment in the first years of life, particularly the first six or eight years, changes the brain so much. So I think we've learned about the importance of cultural and social and educational and family acceptance, but we've also learned that we don't need to be fatalistic about what we can do physically to actually work with and assist a child on their own developmental path. And the outcome differences are astounding. So the sorts of treatments that we're now able to provide for children with autism, for example, when they're diagnosed at an early age, and by that I mean under the age of five, okay. um, 
Ideally, we'd love to diagnose them under the age of three, the sooner oh. the better. Wow. But with intense treatment, based on the current understanding of the neurobiological research and the sorts of therapies that have been demonstrated to be beneficial. So the outcome now is that between 50 and 60 children with autism will attend regular schools, will function in regular classrooms, and will be able to live a much more meaningful, integrated, and happy life. So well, I'm so glad you brought this up because I, I my next question was about parents assisting with school interventions, and you're telling me you can help mainstream these kids back into schools. Absolutely. I think that it's clearly individualized. Sure. And there are uh, there are some children whose degree of neurological challenge is such that they're going to need more environmental adaptations or more supports in a classroom or more therapies going forward. The good news is if we do both of these things, if we create opportunities for biological treatment and we improve the accepting supportive nature of our environments, those children will be more successful. How wonderful. Wow. Well, John, let me ask you this. We had a short discussion about the well-intentioned trap. You and your wife are grandparents to six grandchildren. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So you know what a special relationship that is. So if you get a call from a grandparent and they recognize an issue with one of their grandchildren, what do you suggest they do? Well, it turns out that, uh, as you and I discussed previously, that's not a rare event. And so many of my peers and associates and colleagues over the years have reached out with a question, of what, a number of questions, but the one you and I were specifically talking about is the, speaking from their point of view, and I'll speak for that grandparent, I have concerns about my granddaughter. She's two. She's not talking. She doesn't seem to be developing like the other grandchildren. She doesn't seem to be as interested in playing with toys or interacting with the other children. What shall I do about that? And the, the first big question, that's it is. the big and it, question. It, it's a very legitimate question. And it's a question that comes from love and concern. Absolutely. So with respect to that perspective, that loving perspective, my answer is what does your son or daughter think about what's going on? And if the answer is, well, they're concerned too, then the next step is easy. Then it's, well, why don't we get you connected with some people who can have a look and see if there's sure. something we can do? But what about when that's not the case? And in many cases, it's not. It's like, well, they've got their head in the sand. They don't see this. Or they're in denial. Exactly. They, they're not ready to face it. Right. And um, because I've never been able to come up with a more effective answer, my answer is then shut up. <laughs> okay. Well. Um, because we think about, you know, you talk about all of our lives and our children, grandchildren, close friends, et cetera. We all live in a social network that's very important to us. Right. And the relationship we have with our children is very important to us. So the risk of compromising the relationship with your son or daughter 
by forcing an issue that they're unprepared to think about or to consider at the moment will be a cost you don't want to pay. Thank you for sharing that. That is true. Very true. I mean, if you damage that relationship, then that flows down to the time you get to spend with your grandchild. So other than the shut up comment, the next piece (laughs) of advice is wait for the opportunity because eventually all good loving parents are going to express to other people either in their family network or in others, they're going to express a concern. And so my advice is you shouldn't bring this up until they bring it up. But when they bring it up, so, hey, dad, you know, Sally just doesn't seem like she's doing as well as the other kids did. What do you think? Then you say, yeah, I've wondered about that. I I noticed that. And I think, what do you think? You think we ought to have somebody look at it. Then you take that opportunity to be a supportive uh, family member or friend um, to go with them along that path. But if you start out and say, hey, do you realize that Sally's got this very big issue? And they go, no, she doesn't. Leave me alone. You've, now you're in a hole. They're going to be more embedded in the conflict around this issue. And so nobody wins. Well, let me ask you this then. How can friends and family be supportive of the parents and the child to keep them included in their social sphere? Because oftentimes I've seen with friends where they've had children that have had behavioral issues or developmental issues where they seem for some reason to hold back. And I don't know if it's them or if they're not as feel as welcomed by their friends to social events. Or I'm a little concerned that maybe we aren't reaching out enough as friends or family. Well, I think there's certainly something to that. And it gets to the earlier point about how we build um, comfortable and sustaining and nurturing environments. And that's not just the nuclear family. That also includes the rest of us. And to be honest, I mean, you see this around other issues. I mean, so if you speak to someone who's lost a spouse, or you speak to someone who's gone through a divorce, you'll find that their social networks often are significantly impacted by that. And some of it is awkwardness. Um, Some of it is people, if you pardon my saying so, being judgmental about another person. Some of it is um, just not knowing how to sustain a relationship that was based on one thing and now is based on another thing. So you're right, we have opportunities there. I do see parents and nuclear families who, you know, circle the wagons and come in closer and reduce their connection to people. And obviously that's a choice, but I think from my observations, that choice is often predicated on discomfort of sense of feeling judged or, well, you know, if we take Joey to that birthday party, he is just going to make a mess and he's going to do everything. So maybe what happens is that the friend who's having the birthday party for her child invites Joey and you on a different day. Uh, and so, you, but you take thought, it, it takes does. consideration. And some planning. Um, and you can offer to be inclusive. You can let people know that you care. But here's the other thing. If, he, if an individual parent or a family 
has a child about whom they have concerns or has a serious developmental issue or some other neurological condition, that in and of itself is an isolating event. Mm -hmm. They internalize that. They tend to pull in. And so the way to help them with that is again, to look for that opportunity where you can include them and bring them in and let them know it's okay with you. I'm not judging you because your child has autism. You didn't have anything to do with that. Anyone can have a child with autism or with a neurological or developmental disorder. And so I think the tendency of some people to be hard on themselves and thinking people are judging them negatively is one part of it. But the other thing is, I think there are folks who do look at, well, that'll never happen in our family. There's something Uh, wrong with those people, right? uh, And so those might be the kind of friends you're better off without. But I think in in general, it simply is that being inclusive, reaching out, giving it some thought and calling your friend and simply saying, hey, I haven't seen you at church. What's what's up? We don't go to church now because we try to go to church. It's so disruptive for everybody. And it's just so hard to get him ready to take him to church. Well, how about uh, how about I'll come over and stay with him some morning so you guys can go back to church? I mean, there's different ways that people can do things. Right. And everyone wants to find their own way. But it has to begin from the desire to continue a relationship and to support a relationship which has been changed by the situation with their child. And sometimes it's not as easy. And if you value your friendship and you love them, you make a change. You do. You embrace them. Well, John, here are some of the pieces of wisdom I've learned from you today. And I can't wait till I have the opportunity to go back and listen to this podcast because you're changing my brain and that range of normal is broad. We have to learn to be more accepting. And I guess I'm thinking about going back and listening to your definition about disability. I loved how you expressed that and I wanna listen to that again and again. I've also learned that parents or grandparents really need to avoid that well-intentioned trap and preserve the relationship first and trust in the parent who knows there are challenges, accepting that 20 to 25% of children do have some type of neurodevelopmental challenge, whether it's a more mild challenge versus one that's a little bit more dramatic, and when possible, to start diagnosis and treatment as early as possible. So John, in closing, would you please share with us how you keep your well and wealthy? So the, my goal as much as possible, and I'm certainly not always successful by any means, is to really keep the balance that I can. And so to me, the balance is, um, obviously, I love the work I do. I love the people I work with and the children and the families that I work with. And that to me is energizing, um, but also tiring. And I have fallen into the trap previously of, 
working too hard, working too long, working too much. And so as I've matured, I hope, or slowed down, you can look either way. I now spend more time with family, with close friends, have developed some close friends with mutual intellectual interests and that we spend time with a glass of wine and talking about Winston Churchill or talking about history or doing things that we're interested in, found friends that we travel with that we're close to. And so we have new experiences with those friends. And we're fortunate that all of our children and grandchildren live in the St. Louis area. And we have the opportunity to see them almost every week, every other week, particularly during the summer, everybody comes over and hangs out. And I'm kind of watching and enjoying my grandchildren grow, talking to them about about things. Um, So I try to keep myself intellectually stimulated outside of work. And the physical side is I still do a lot of my own gardening and I, I swim regularly and for fun, I like to drive fast cars. And so, Ooh. so that's, that's a guilty pleasure, but those are nothing very dramatic. I don't think are informative in that list, but the point is it's different things for different areas of our development and health and well-being. Well, actually, John, I'm looking forward to having that glass of wine. I finished the <laughs> splendid in the vial about right. Churchill yes. and I just picked up Lady Clementine. So uh, yeah. give me a, a little moment to catch up and, and we'll have a discussion. <laughs> That'd be great. I'd enjoy that. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, Eric, I'm going to ask you, you've had experience working at Boys Town, so you've had a broad range of children to have experiences with. So do you have any questions for Dr. Mantovani? Dr. Manavani, I first of all, I want to thank you so much for everything that you do and spending time with us today. Um, I was reminded, and, and Barbara, since you brought up Boys Town, Father Flanagan has a quote that I think encapsulates you perfectly. Uh, he said, when you help a child today, you write the history of tomorrow. Oh. And I think that's what you're doing every day. So thank you for that. My question is actually about younger kids. I worked with teenagers, um, but the pandemic, obviously it affected everyone, but do you think it muddied the water when it comes to uh, folks being concerned about the younger kids? And I I speak specifically because my grandson was entering kindergarten when all of a sudden, oh, we're going to do kindergarten through Zoom. (sighs) What? (laughs) You know, so the social development of younger children, did the pandemic muddy the waters when it comes to folks thinking, oh, there's some social issues here, when actually it was just the fact that they were kept away from classmates for a year to a year and a half, and it's just going to be a little bit more adaptive. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a a really important question. And uh, my view, if you go back to this sort of dance between the neurobiological progress and the environmental opportunity um, and stimulation of children, COVID uh, darn near wrecked the second part of that. And so We've got young children um, and not so young children who uh, have been isolated for, in most cases, at least a year, sometimes for two years, at critical stages of brain and emotional development. And so, yes, I think there's a price to be paid for that. And I've listened to educators talking about the academic gaps that have been created where mm-hmm. children just lost a year or two and they're, they might be starting third grade, but they're going to have to begin with some second grade curriculum just because the kids really couldn't do it. And the pandemic was such a earth changing event, literally. And I do think the impact on children is still to be fully determined, but I don't see anything good that's come out of that. Um, and I think you're right. Lack of opportunity 
does impact children's ability to move in the expected directions for social and communication development. What we don't know, and I'm hopeful will not be the case, but I don't know yet that there won't be some permanent price that children during really critical stages of development lost a year and a half. And yes, they'll pick up again, but there's been some critical gaps left behind. And again, it's something that a thoughtful and child-centered um, culture and society should be really focusing on. Uh, the headlines today are that we don't have enough teachers that are willing to go back into mm-hmm. the classrooms. And so we don't have the experienced teachers. And there's nothing like that first grade teacher that's 25 years in who can really work with with children and understand the differences. So I think we've I don't want to be pessimistic about it because I think children are resilient and I think that there's certainly reason that we can expect better things in the future, but um, you're right. It created some gaps and I don't know how soon or if ever all of those gaps are going to be repaired. Wow. Deep question, Eric. Thank you for asking. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just think that it's, I want people to be aware. Obviously, there has been a, I would say within the last decade, the autism spectrum, people are more sensitive to it, more aware of it, which is a beautiful thing. But at the same time, now looking at people wondering, oh, does this child have some developmental issues? Or is it just the fact that they, like you said, there's this one to two year gap where now they have to kind of make up that time socially and we'll see what kind of plays out. But I like the fact that people are sensitive to it. I hope people can continue to be sensitive to it. Like you said, everybody's unique in their own way. They just need to be able to identify that and help them develop in the way that they're going to develop best. So I appreciate your time so much today. Barbara, how do you want to close us out here today? Well, I want to thank John for joining us. And Eric, I'm going to ask you, has your brain been changed? Oh, my brain's changing all the time, Barbara. (laughs) Every time I get on a podcast with you, I learn something new and I am so appreciative of that. Uh, Dr. Manavani, thank you so much again for joining us. And Barbara, thank Thank you. you. And Eric, back to your issue around the hang in there and give kids more time. The other thing I would add to that with which I agree is that if you do have questions though, there are people who have spent a lifetime learning the nuances and ins Mm -hmm. and outs. And we may not have all of the answers, but it's always a good thing to have a reliable uh, professional or somebody in your tool belt that you can go to and say, so we think this may be a lot about COVID and maybe it is, but we have this concern and that concern and this concern. And there are some things that we can do to help sort some of that out. So it admittedly, it's not perfect, but we don't need to hang back from asking for that sort of advice, even though the advice is not always easy to access. That's a mm-hmm. whole nother question, but there are folks out there who can help. And speaking of that, if somebody wants to reach out to you, Dr. Manavani, how do they do that? So I'll provide the information in terms of where our center is um, and the and the contact information for that. And so certainly I tend not to make my email generally available. It's available to people that I work with and people that certainly are within the, the healthcare system and so forth. So can also provide that, but I'd want that to be selective and not just, just not lay it out there for everybody. Absolutely. That's understood. And so what we'll do is we'll have Barbara, I know that you have some resources that we'll include in the show notes, correct? Right. That's right. I will. And I'm going to reach out to John and I'll update those podcast notes. Perfect. That that is fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Dr. Manavani, again, thank you for joining us. Barbara, this is just fantastic. Every time 
we get together, uh, just a huge smile on my face because I know I'm going to learn something and hear from a great guest. So thank you so much. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Keeping the Well and Wealthy with Barbara Archer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Barbara comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask you to share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review as this actually helps others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Hightower, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to go out in the world and make a difference. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Hightower Wealth Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Hightower Wealth Advisors is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity's specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.